Thank you for joining us for Listen NGI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Jonathan Buscalia hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 14,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Biscalia, a professor of medicine at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University on Long Island. And this month, I'm super pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. Daryl Party, who is professor of medicine and chief of gastroenterology and hepatology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Dr. Party is an expert in microscopic colitis. And we're here today to discuss microscopic colitis. So Dr. Party, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Glad to be here. Great. It's, uh, this is an interesting topic uh, for, for us because, um, you know, I think uh, a lot of times on the podcast, we're, we're talking about topics which um, can be purely endoscopic. And uh, this topic is not purely endoscopic. And so number one, I'm excited about that. Uh, number two, I'm also excited because as a person who uh, had has a lot of general uh, gastroenterology in my practice, I feel like I see microscopic colitis um, fairly consistently. But I want to start off by just asking you, you know, how common is this? Um, you know, who, who should raise our antenna, so to speak, when we're in the, uh, the ambulatory practice and we see somebody come in with complaints of chronic diarrhea? You can talk to me a little bit about that, if you will. Yeah, so it is important because it's so common, Jonathan. Um, you know, if we look at it from a purely epidemiological perspective, the incidence is between 10 and 20 per 100,000. So that's getting up there close to where, say, for example, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis live. Um, prevalence is maybe 100 to 200 per 100,000. So not at all uncommon. And if we look at it from a more practical perspective for the folks in the endoscopy suite or you know, in the office, this will represent between 7 and 15% of patients with chronic diarrhea. And, you know, it's more common in women and more common in older folks. So the older your population, the higher that percentage is going to be. So, so give me a, a, a classic example of somebody presenting to the office who, you know, microscopic colitis should be highest on our differential. Yeah. So the most typical would be an, a woman in her 60s or 70s with chronic diarrhea. Okay. Does it happen in men at all? It does for sure. Um, yeah. And I, I don't want to overemphasize those demographics. You know, we've reported series in children uncommonly, but it can happen in children, certainly can happen in men. Um, most of your listeners will be aware that there's two subtypes, lymphocytic colitis and collagenous colitis. And in most studies, this female predominance is more prevalent in collagenous colitis than lymphocytic. And in fact, in some series, the, the uh, sex ratio for lymphocytic colitis is close to one-to-one. -one. So for sure, it happens in men. Interesting, interesting. Um, so 
what about you know the severity of it? Um, you know, chronic diarrhea can in, can encompass a lot of things. Um, can you can you get a little more specific with us? Like, for example, do we see nocturnal symptoms? Is there any weight loss with this? I mean, how do we really narrow this down more when we're yeah. thinking about all the causes of chronic diarrhea? Yeah, right. So um, it is typically watery diarrhea. So bloody diarrhea would be unexpected and would definitely make you think of a different diagnosis. But otherwise. Um, Abdominal pain is reported in up to 50% of patients, typically wow. mild, um, but significant overlap with irritable bowel syndrome, for example, with abdominal pain and diarrhea. Uh, nocturnal stools can occur, urgency for sure, fecal incontinence, a major driver of quality of life. Um, and weight loss also reported in up to 50% of patients. That's typically mild. And the more severe the pain is, the more severe the weight loss, the more we need to think about a broader differential diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that makes it the challenging part, you know, when you're trying to, um, you know, differentiate between, as you said, you know, irritable bowel syndrome or some other uh, uh, more, you know, serious disease in terms of um, chronic illness, um, you know, and if, if there's pain and there's weight loss with, with microscopic colitis, I think that muddies the waters a little bit. I think, you know, uh, maybe this is my own bias, but I, I feel like um, I'm used to thinking of it as painless, but I guess you said up to 50%, which is higher than I thought. Um, yes, um, it, it's higher than most people think. But um, again, most of the time, that's mild pain. It's not a yeah. major component of their symptom complex. Okay. Okay. Now, the other thing that I also sort of that comes to my mind uh, quickly when I think of microscopic colitis is I think of... Um, <laughs> well, I think of medicine and I want to talk to you about that. Um, and then I also think of uh, endoscopic or lack thereof, and, and we can talk endoscopic findings and we can talk about that as well. It, it, are there truly any endoscopic findings here? Um, so, well, let's, let's talk about more about the risk factors in medicine for a minute. So what kind of medicines um, pose, you know, put a patient at risk for microscopic colitis, if any? You know, that's a really, really interesting question. And the answer to that's become more complicated recently. So the, the standard answer would have been things like NSAIDs, aspirin, PPIs, SSRIs, statins, and really a long list of other medicines, including now we're seeing checkpoint inhibitor colitis. A subset of that has a microscopic colitis, a histology to it, uh, hormone replacement therapy, but the interesting thing, and the reason why it's less clear now is there have been several studies in the last couple of years that when you use diarrhea controls as opposed to healthy controls, a lot of those associations go away. Interesting. And our study and other studies recently, the only one that holds up when you use diarrhea uh, controls, so biopsy negative chronic diarrhea as controls, is the NSAIDs, the PPIs, the SSRIs go away. So the thinking is that from a, from a pathophysiologic perspective, that maybe those other drugs cause diarrhea and bring an otherwise mild case of microscopic colitis to our attention, to our endoscopy suite, and we make a diagnosis, but it's really more that it's causing nonspecific diarrhea, not per se the microscopic colitis. That's so I, I find that super interesting from a, from a mechanistic understanding perspective, but from a practical perspective, the, the clinician in the office, I don't know that that matters too much. Mm -hmm. Someone with bad diarrhea on a PPI, if the diarrhea came after the PPI, if there's not a good reason to be on a PPI, then maybe stop and see what happens to the diarrhea. Mm -hmm. I mean, should we be, is, 
I've sometimes seen microscopic colitis uh, put into a pool of inflammatory bowel disease. You see Crohn's, microscopic colitis. Is that the right way to think about it? You know, um, I think that's mostly semantic. Um, well, mostly semantic. So for example, we're, we're now publishing a paper on a GWAS study looking at genetics and collagen colitis. And some of the associations were the same as we see in IBD. So there may be more to that, but going back to my initial reaction about it being semantics, some people consider it a form of IBD, others don't. You know, for example, at Mayo, the practical meaning of that is that it's seen in our IBD clinic instead of our general GI clinic. Other than that, I'm not sure it has any practical implication whether it's an IBD or not an IBD. Okay. Well, let's talk more about risk factors. So we talked about certain drugs and specifically, you know, maybe NSAIDs more than the others. What else? Any other uh, well-described risk factors for the disease? Yeah, well, just to state the obvious, age and sex are two, two big ones. Right. Um, several recent studies showing smoking, especially for collagenous colitis. Um, another very interesting study, a large population-based study out of Europe, showing that obesity actually protects against microscopic colitis. And still trying to understand what that means. But so in other words, a lower BMI would be associated with microscopic colitis. And then other autoimmune diseases, you know, diabetes, psoriasis, certainly celiac disease would increase the risk of having microscopic colitis. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So I want to go in reverse order now. I want to talk about the histological findings and some before we go to the endoscopy for a minute, because I think it's just an important distinction, um, you know, when we talk about the broader category of microscopic colitis. So Tell us about that, um, if you will, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of characteristic histological findings between the two forms of microscopic colitis. Yeah, right. So the, the name of the disease tells you that you need biopsies to make a diagnosis, right? We've just talked about how the symptoms are characteristic, but nonspecific. So for, for lymphocytic colitis, the primary feature is, or the defining feature is intraepithelial lymphocytosis in the colon, just like we see in the small bowel for celiac disease. And normally you would have about five lymphocytes per hundred epithelial cells. And arbitrarily lymphocytic colitis is defined as more than 20 mm -hmm. lymphocytes per hundred epithelial cells. And um, typically along with that, you get a mixed inflammatory infiltrate in the lamina propria. And then collagenous colitis tends to be more the sub-epithelial collagen band, which is normal. Uh, but normally five microns or less would be thickened and arbitrarily that's defined as more than seven or 10 microns. Um, typically with collagenous class, you'll still have the intraepithelial lymphocytosis, just less prominent than lymphocytic colitis. Um, and then importantly, no um, features of chronic colitis like IBD, you know, crypt architectural distortion that should not be present. Do these features go away when, when treated? There's not a lot of histologic follow-up data, but the, those that exist indicate, not surprisingly, that the lymphocyte infiltration is more likely to go away than the collagenous uh, band thickening. Mm -hmm. That may be a manifestation just of time. It probably takes longer for a collagen band to go away than lymphocytes to disappear. But again, not a lot of robust uh, histologic follow-up studies. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's... Uh... 
I'm sure the answer is no here, but I'm, I'm just so curious to know specifically in the patients that had the disease or have the disease that is medicine believed to be medicine induced, say NSAID, I think it'd be fascinating to see, you know, what happened histologically after the NSAID was removed and the symptoms went away, but I'm, I'm guessing we don't have anything close to that in terms of data. Yeah, very few, um, slightly more, but still not much clinical data. So what happens with drug withdrawal um, and even fewer, like just a handful of rechallenge cases where someone had a drug-induced case that got better when it was stopped and then rechallenge it came back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we don't really know what happens with histology. I predict that if it was drug-induced MC, the, the histologic changes would go away if you stop the drug. Yeah. So let's go to endoscopy for a minute. Um, you have a patient uh, that you see for the first time in the office, and you strongly suspect just based on history and risk factors that uh, the patient uh, may have MC. Who are you scoping? Is it necessary to scope to make the diagnosis with all that we've discussed? And then, uh, so first, let's, let's tackle that real quick. Yeah. Um, I, I think, well, to make a diagnosis, yes, endoscopy and biopsies are required. But that's not the question you're asking. You're asking in in the office, you're seeing someone with diarrhea, do they need to be scoped? Two points there. Number one, don't miss an opportunity for colon cancer screening. Mm -hmm. So if they're over 45, sure, do a scope, make sure there's no polyps. And while you're there, you might as well do some biopsies. And the second, if that's not an issue, say they're less than 45 or they've had their screening within the appropriate period of time, then I think it comes down to the severity of diarrhea. After having three or four loose stools per day, and they haven't tried an anti-diarrheal, you might as well just give that a try, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. the symptoms overlap with irritable bowel or functional diarrhea, and maybe they would be happy just on a couple of uh, emodium per day. Um, but anything more than that, certainly urgency, abdominal pain, um, waking up at night, then they should be scoped and biopsied. And... Um... Let's then talk about endoscopic findings. Um, are there any endoscopic findings that may clue you in that you're on the right path? Um, definitely not any that would clue you in. In other words, nothing specific. But there are some features that are described, especially as our scopes and our optics get better and better. Yeah. It's not uncommon to see edema, loss of vascular pattern, some nonspecific erythema. Um, I don't have a number for that. I still yeah. think most of the time it looks normal, but it's not uncommon to see, hey, things aren't exactly quite right here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's even cases reported of so-called pseudomembranous microscopic colitis. Uh, you know, obviously that need, you need to rule out C. diff before you call it microscopic colitis. And those are just a handful of case reports. Yeah, I seem to remember a paper which was, you know, a retrospective analysis really within the last couple of years, I think, and I, I hope I'm not wrong on this because I don't want to, but I think it was out of Chicago and our, uh, maybe Raj Kiswani, I'm not sure. And they and, and just sort of looking at some of the same features you described, um, you know, just basic nonspecific stuff, but, but stuff that's, that's there. Um, in patients with microscopic colitis and not just, hey, everything looks completely normal. Um, so I'll have to go back and look that up. But I, I, I recall being a little bit, as I read that, uh, I, I remember sort of raising an eyebrow and thinking, oh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, we need to pay a little bit more attention um, when we're scoping these patients and really trying to figure out their chronic diarrhea instead of just saying, oh, this is all normal. Well, I'll biopsy for microscopic colitis and see what shows up. Which brings me to my next question is, is where should we be biopsying how many pieces should we be taking? What segments? Is there any, is there any guidance here? 
Yeah, that's a commonly asked question. The, the short answer is we don't have a lot of data for that, but I, I can be more practical than that. So, you know, there's a couple of papers that show that the findings of microscopic colitis, whether it's lymphocytic or collagenous, become less prominent the more distal you go in the colon. Okay. And a study showing that if you do just rectal biopsies, you can miss up to 40% of cases. Wow. And another study showing that if, if you include sigmoid biopsies in that, you can miss, you know, maybe 20%. So uh, I ask that people do biopsies from throughout the colon, but above the rectosigmoid. Okay. It can be patchy. So I like to have right and left colon biopsies. In my opinion, there's no reason to separate those into different bottles because that's not clinically meaningful right. information. Having said that, I can tell you that there are European guidelines that do suggest that the biopsies be separated into two or even four bottles to sort of map it out. At least where I work, the more bottles you submit, the more the pathologist charges. So there's yes. financial implications. So, and I, I just don't understand the, the clinical benefit of mapping it out like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only, I, I agree with you. I mean, I guess the only thing I could think of is if you had a you know patient who was partially responding or something like that, and you wanted to go back and rescope and, and pay particular attention to gaining more biopsies from the part of their colon, which was more prominently involved previously. But I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it makes much clinical sense. Um, okay. Uh, let's just pause for a minute. I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor once again, Cook Medical, for sponsoring the uh, podcast, Listen In GI Endoscopy. We appreciate that and Cook's uh, dedication to the ASGE and to endoscopy in general. Thank you, as always, Cook. Um, so this is great, uh, Daryl. Let's, uh, let's just talk a little bit more. So we've got our biopsies. Uh, we've got our clinical suspicion. We've scoped our patient. We've got our biopsies. We talked about histology. Um, we've made the diagnosis here, and now um, it's time to treat the patient. Um, and um, let's say, for an example, you know this patient um, happens to be taking uh, some ibuprofen three days a week, you know, as needed for osteoarthritis pain. Uh, that's it. Otherwise, they're having you know several watery bowel movements uh, a day. Um, what, what's your approach here? What are the first few things that you do? Yeah, so I, I do a careful assessment of the medication list, including over-the-counter stuff. And if there's any temporal association with a, starting a drug and the onset of the diarrhea and the drug is not critical, then I'll ask them to stop it for four to six weeks. Um, use some anti-diarrheals in the meantime and just see what happens. I don't have a number for you, but I definitely have a handful of patients in my practice where that makes the symptoms go away. Um, go ahead. Simple, simple question. Uh, Cause I think people want to know, like, what's your, I know this is going to sound crazy. What's your anti-diarrheal of choice? What do you use typically? Uh, um, I use loperamide. Loperamide. And, and, what, I, and how do you use it? So I, just like I do for irritable bowel, in other words, try to see what their pattern is. Okay. You know, some patients have mostly morning diarrhea, then I'll have them take it either before they go to bed or first thing when they get up. Some people have uh, postprandial diarrhea, then I have them take it before each meal. Okay. Okay. All right. So you've, uh, you've, you try to eliminate those drugs, which may be an offending agent. Um, by the way, do you ever change somebody from a PPI to an H2 blocker? Definitely. Try, try that yeah. out. Okay. And if they're on an SSRI for depression and that has a temporal association with the diarrhea, I'll ask them to work with their psychiatrist to switch to a different class, like a TCA. Okay. 
Okay. So now, but now let's say you have a patient that's uh, not responding to either of those, um, you know, or maybe partially responding. What else can we use? Right. So the, the best drug um, is budesonide and that's recommended as first line therapy by the AGA and other guidelines. Uh, and I use that in the majority of my patients. But again, I don't see patients that tend to have mild symptoms. Mm-hmm. If I do see someone with mild symptoms, I, I will try Pepto-Bismol. Um, we're, we're putting together a manuscript now of our experience, and about 60% of patients respond to Pepto-Bismol, which is not as good as bismuth, sorry, not as good as budesonide. But the benefit of Pepto-Bismol is that, number one, it's not a steroid. And number two, when they do respond and then you stop the treatment, the chance of relapse and the time to relapse is better than it is for budesonide. Really? Yeah. What can like like how so? Number wise, percentage right. wise. Yeah. So the 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 chance of responding to budesonide is eighty to ninety percent. Okay. You know, one of my colleagues calls microscopic colitis budesonide deficiency. because it works so well in fact when it doesn't work you're really scratching your head saying what's going on here in our olmstead county cohort the response rate including you know complete and partial response was 94 percent so only six percent had no meaningful response so that's unusual Um, whereas uh, again for for bismuth it would be more like 60 percent response rate for budesonide the recurrence after you stop it is about 70 percent So it's expected. So I get some referrals because a patient recurred after they stopped budesonide. That's actually expected. That's the norm. And then we can talk about maintenance therapy. For for bismuth, the uh, relapse is more like 50%. Okay. And the time to relapse is, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but it's something like 14 weeks Mm -hmm. median, whereas for budesonide, it's more like six or eight weeks. Okay. And in terms of the initial budesonide regimen, um, what do you use? Initial. I use I use the controlled ileal release. Mm-hmm. Number one, I have more experience with it. Number two, it's less expensive. Okay. And I do use nine milligrams for the first induction. Mm-hmm. I expect a rapid uh, improvement in the vast majority of patients. I do use it for the uh, eight-week standard Crohn's um, prescription. And then I stop. And again, I expect a high rate of recurrence, but if someone's in that 20 to 30% that doesn't recur good for them, I just wait then for recurrence. If they have a rapid recurrence, then I'll just reinduce typically with six milligrams, get them feeling better. And then I'll taper after a few weeks down to three milligrams a day, wait a few more weeks. If they're still well, I even tapered on to three milligrams every other day. Mm-hmm. And we have a paper coming out in the red journal Um, that shows our experience with that. And the vast majority of our patients who were on maintenance budesonide had a good response to three milligrams a day or three milligrams every other day. Okay. So um, just to clarify, in the first induction, you're keeping them on nine milligrams straight away for eight weeks and then stopping. You're not... Actually, what I do is I do nine milligrams a day for six weeks. Okay. And then six milligrams a day for one week and then three milligrams a day for two weeks. So it's a taper. It's the same number of pills as the standard Crohn's prescription. Okay. Is there any role for um, five ASA medicines in microscopic colitis? Uh, Short answer is no. Okay. 
uh, two really well done randomized controlled trials out of Europe for both collagenous and lymphocytic colitis showed no benefit um, over placebo. Okay. So now I might, that the, the one study in lymphocytic colitis, there were some issues with it. In other words, they stopped the study early because budesonide was better than placebo. There was a signal that mesalamine might have been better than placebo, but because they stopped early, the P was not significant. But there was at least a hint that maybe there was some benefit. So if I get a patient that's not responding to budesonide or the other drugs, before I go to immune suppressing drugs or biologics, I often would try mesalamine, especially for lymphocytic colitis. Okay. Um, I got so many questions now. Mm. <laughs> so let me just stay with this for a minute because uh, I think it's fascinating. So uh, tell me about the patients that you see that are not responding to misalamine, or budesonide or mesalamine, and you mentioned immunosuppressive therapy or biologics. What, uh, what do you do typically? Yep. What do you do? Well, one thing that I'm doing a lot more, and we're I'm submitting a manuscript on this too very shortly, is to use bioacid sequestrants. Hmm. That's there's there's data on that going back almost to the time when this these drugs were first described in the in the 80s, um, and and we've got some experience here at Mayo, so I'll we, I'll use a bioacid sequestrant before I go to immunomodulators or um, biologics. And, Keeping the, and will you keep the budesonide or the mesalamine going, or each, or what, or will you? If they had a partial response to budesonide, then I'll keep it going. If they had no okay. response then or intolerance with a significant side effect, then I'll just do bioacid sequestrant monotherapy. Okay. Okay. And then how about um, immunosuppressants? You're just like in inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease, or what do you do? Yeah. Um, th there's a little bit of data on things like azathioprine, mercaptopurine, mm. methotrexate. Um, it's not that impressive. There's a lot of toxicity. Remember, these tend to be older patients, so they tolerate it less well than the younger IBD patients. So I now almost always try to go right to biologics. And given the safety profile, I try to use vetalizumab. Okay. And you realize we, we just looked at our experience at Mayo where we get a lot of referrals for refractory patients. We had something like 12 patients treated with vetalizumab. So we are talking about the very tip of the uh, iceberg yeah, here. Yeah. Um, is there a difference overall in responses uh, from, from microscopic uh, in microscopic life from lymphocytic and collagenous or can we tell patients, you know, because you have say collagenous, you're like less likely or more likely? No, the, the vast majority of studies show no difference in response rate. The, the, the study we did on bismuth showed actually one of the predictors of response, number one was milder diarrhea. Number two was lymphocytic colitis. Mm -hmm. That's the first study I'm aware of that showed a potential differential by, by histologic subtype. Otherwise, you know, the clinical features and the uh, treatment response, the prognosis all tend to be the same. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, if you're, let's, and I know you have a, a very uh, sort of focused referral uh, practice at Mayo for this disease. But if you are, you know, the average gastroenterologist in practice, and you're seeing a patient and diagnosing them for the first time with this, um, wh what can you tell patients in terms of, hey, what is, what's the expectation that you're going to require medicine long term for this in some fashion? Um, what would you if you had to put a number on it, just to give the patient some kind of 
you know, reality check, uh, what, what would you say to them? Yeah. So, um, that is a really interesting part of the, um, literature on microscopic layers. So if you look at so-called natural history studies, mm -hmm. the chance of a long-term remission off drugs has varied so widely from one study to the next that I don't know what the right answer is. Mm. Uh, literally from, you know, single digits to upwards of 90% from one study to another. So uh, based on our Olmsted County data, which is a population-based cohort, we see about 70% of patients who need budesonide end up needing maintenance therapy. So that's the number I quote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see where the problem is. Yeah, <laughs> you definitely have a biased, um, you know, cohort that you're you're looking at this. With. Yeah. Wow, this is fascinating. So great. I just, uh, sort of to close, I want to just ask you if, um, you know, other than some of the research and some of the stuff that you're looking at with your experience at Mayo, are there any other um, sort of innovative, prospective things going on, whether it's Mayo or anywhere? in the field of microscopic colitis, um, uh, just to, to learn, to you know, get a little sneak peek at what might be coming down the pipeline. Yeah, so um, I, I'm very interested and excited about this uh, area of bioelectric sequestrants as a treatment. Mm -hmm. And so we're putting together a grant now looking at um, mechanistic data, like can we predict who is going to respond to bioelectric sequestrants are there subtypes? Are there, you know, um, phenotypes, if you will, of the uh, not just two broad categories based on histology, but can we do sort of multiomic predictions mm -hmm. of uh, personalized treatment, you know, algorithms? Um, so it'd be nice to see if that comes to pass. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. Very cool. Well, Daryl, this has been this has been great. Um, I think, uh, as I always say on this podcast, I always learn a lot, and I and I know that our listeners must be feeling the same way. So, I really appreciate your time and your expertise. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're you're quite welcome. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in again this month, and uh, look forward to our next month's podcast. Have a great day. Thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor, Cook Medical. You can find the full series at ASGE.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Music